Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Welcome to the New Books Network. Everybody and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Jacob Udy about his new book with Muggsy Bogues called Muggsy, My Life from a Kid in the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. Jake has written for many publications, including the Washington Post, Vanity Fair, and the Seattle Times. Jake, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for coming on. Jake and I have had a few tef- technical difficulties. <laughs> I had to postpone due to illness. I'm so glad we're we're making this work. Yes, um, illness. You must be the only person that's suffering from illness these days. It's not like a giant <laughs> epidemic going on. No, thank you. No, thank you for having me. In all seriousness, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, so, Jake, how did this how did this project come about? How did you get connected with Muggsy on this idea? Yeah, you know, um, I wish I had a, a more interesting story. It's sort of just um, things lined up. You know, I was talking to Triumph about a couple ideas. I, I live here in Seattle, Washington, and I'm a giant NBA fan. and have been an NBA fan since my maybe early teens or even before that. And so I was talking to Triumph Books, the publisher of, of the Muggsy uh, memoir, about a book about Seattle basketball, you know, with the hopes that the Sonics are coming back. You know, there's sort of this constant rumor that they're going to come back and Nothing was really working out at the time, and I was also speaking with Muggsy and his daughter, Brittany, who sort of does a lot of management stuff with him about an, another interview idea, and that actually didn't pan out either, but I connected those two dots, um, and Triumph was interested, Muggsy was interested, and we just kind of got started. It was during the pandemic. Um, I don't remember if I if we signed in, in late 2019 or early 2020, but um, the book was written while everybody was in lockdown, myself included, and just kind of plugged away at it, and... Um, as a, I'm 39 years old, so the 90s are sort of right in my wheelhouse. Um, and so, no, I knew Muggsy's career well. I knew the Hornets well. Um, I had, I was one of the many people to have the the starter jacket and to no, watch those, Muggsy uh, and Space Jam. Hot, yeah, man. man, they're everything. Um, and I, so, I was just a fan, you know. And um, it was a pleasure to dive into his career. And he's obviously he's he's a one of one and and remains so. And I, I'm very lucky it worked out, and I'm very grateful that it did. So I'm curious about the process of, of working with someone on, on, a, on an autobiography like that. How, how often did you and Muggsy speak? Was it, you know, was it like a few really long sessions or did you speak regularly for, you know, once a week? For, how did that process work? Yeah, it, it, it's different every time. And I'm actually working on a couple of projects right now where I'm speaking to the, um, the subject regularly, weekly, if not, I mean, you know, scheduled weekly. But then we have texts and other calls and stuff that are... Um, even more frequent. But with Muggsy, you know, we did a couple of big calls and then we, I was sort of in constant communication over email and, and text and things like that to sort of check in about details or a big part of the book was him connecting me with people in his life, um, teammates and people he grew up with and things like that. So there was a lot of phone calls and texts regarding that. But in terms of the interview process and sort of the fact finding process, we had a bunch of or, uh, several big calls and a lot of it was, you know, he has a, an autobiography or a biography or a memoir, however you want to call it, um, that came out in the mid-90s so in the Land of Giants. That was a big 
resource and also another book called uh, The Boys of Dunbar um, about his high school life in, with the sort of the, the you know most prolific or the most accomplished high school team um, out, of, out of Baltimore. So those were two big resources and there's a lot of written about him. So it was, I was sort of piecing together a bunch of stuff that was already uh, out there and plus conversations with him and, and a lot of conversations with people in his life. Got it. So, you know, obviously Muggsy is best known as, as for being 5'3". He's the, he's the shortest player in NBA history. Um, but, you, you know, you start off the book with uh, clearly there were obstacles in his life and his childhood, you know, in addition to overcoming his lack of height. And it starts off in, in startling fashion with him getting shot age of five. Can you talk about that incident a little bit and how maybe that incident specifically or just the, his surroundings in general shaped him? Yeah. So uh, to overcome being the shortest player by far ever in the history of the NBA, I, you know, I can only imagine, or at least through the research I found out, that it takes a series of overcoming things through one's life to overcome that giant obstacle. And so Muggsy was no... Uh, he was used to um, overcoming things in his life, both a lot of ridicule because of his height, living in a city that was deteriorating around him. You know, in the, in the book, he talks about Baltimore and the areas that he lived in Baltimore felt like a home, but almost with each passing day, people around him deteriorated with uh, the drug epidemic and just poverty and, uh, you know, money leaving the city and Baltimore sort of notorious for, um, not being great, as you know, was depicted in the show The Wire. If you're familiar with that one at all, which is also sure, of course, yeah, basically about the time and when which Muggsy was coming of age. Maybe he was a little prior, a little bit before that. But so he was just constantly overcoming those things and and doing so through um, self belief. You know, I think that's kind of the only thing that you can lean on in order to do that is to believe in yourself. And he had some, his mother was very integral in that. His sister was very integral in that. And then his teammate and best friend, Reggie Williams was also um, integral in that. And Reggie went on to play in the NBA and be drafted by, I think the Clippers. And then he had good seasons with Denver. But I mean, from day one, you know, his life, he, his, his father went to jail, unfortunately for, you know, not a not a big crime, but he was. I think he was in there for about a decade or, or more, um, and so Muggsy just had to sort of deal with it, which is obviously way easier said than done, and and, and rather tragic. But from all those difficult circ- circumstances, his resolve and his heart grew, and the muscles that he used sort of mentally and internally to achieve more than anyone ever could have expected, and as, as he continues to, those were developed and and. He had success in high school too, which is a major thing. Um, and and as a result of that success, his coach was given opportunities that that then gave Muggsy more uh, opportunities in, in sort of like five star camps and things like that. And um, and that's sort of detailed in the book too. But I, I you know I, I don't think anybody can really know what it's like. I almost can't believe it, you know. And and it's for those reasons why I, I sort of um, stump if that's the word uh, to, for Muggsy to be in the Hall of Fame because of that just amazing uh, resolve and ability to achieve. I can't, I don't understand it. You know, I wrote a book with him about it, but it's, um, to, I mean, I'm six two and I didn't sniff the NBA, you know, Muggs is a foot shorter than me. And uh, he was in it for 14 years and uh, averaged a double, double one of those years. And, you know, basically averaged 10 and 10 throughout his prime, 10 points, 10 assists. And he's amazing. Yeah, it's remarkable. I, I know, you know, I'm thinking of guys who I, I'm obviously a huge basketball fan, too. And I'm thinking of guys who um, now you could get, get you could actually get away with being a little smaller. Now, you know, the game's gotten smaller, actually, than when you and I were kids. And I, you know, I for random name, Lou Bullock. I went to the University of Michigan and Lou Bullock was there and he was fantastic. But he was six feet. And ultimately, he was it was believed he was too small for the NBA at six feet. And there are a lot of guys like that. And so to think at 5'3", it's just, I don't even know what you say about that. Yeah. Um, there is, you know, there's a history of some shorter people like Isaiah Thomas, um, is, uh, the Boston Celtics one player. He's 5'9", you know, which is six six inches taller than Muggsy, which is significant. He was an MVP candidate. And I, yeah. everybody talks about Spud Webb, who was 5'7", which is also significantly taller than Muggsy, four, four inches. Um but yeah, I mean, the, the list isn't that long, and Muggsy, in a way, is, um, you know, I guess I, IT, as A. Thomas has accomplished, he was an MVP candidate, but Muggsy is kind of at the top of that list, especially as 
for someone to be as, as diminutive and to constantly hear it, you know, everybody, every, every day he hears it, I, you know, it's, it's not that he would want to escape it, but you know, when, when you know, it's, people are constantly talking about something that should be a detriment to him all the time. And it's kind of wander off a duck's back or he's accepted it to a degree. And um, I, obviously he's had to, but it's just, it's just constantly remarkable everywhere you turn in terms of his resolve and his ability to just push forward and achieve. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, that's, that's something I wondered throughout the book that here's this guy who, you know, as you just, as you just noted, you know, averaged basically a double double in his prime um, was a starting point guard for many years in the league, had a 14 year career, which is, I mean, remarkable. He played on a few very good teams. And yet, you know, when people mention Muggsy, it's, oh, that really short guy. Right. And, and, and there's some, and, and it's said with respect, like, wow, that short guy can play, but it's, it's always kind of prefaced with that short guy. And I wonder, you know, does Muggsy ever feel like, I wish people would just remember me as a good point guard or a great point guard. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I, uh, though I wrote the book with him, I don't want to speak for him, you know, like as if I am inside of his brain. Um, that's, you know, but I, I think he likes both. You know, I think he wants to be honored as as an excellent player, which he was. Uh, um, and you know, some of the the forwards with the book, um, especially with Alonzo Mourning, he like the the first thing he talked to me about was Muggsy putting his arm around him, which is just a, an amazing picture. This sort of nearly seven foot guy, you know. <laughs> under the wing of a five foot three guy, um, which is just a, a, adorable and funny and just amazing. Um, but I think it's, it's tool, it's dual pronged, you know, Muggsy should be remembered for who he is exactly, which is a standout player, a contributing player, an important player, and also someone who's achieved something that nobody else has even come close to really. Um, and, you know, Earl Boykins was five, five and Earl uh, had a good career and a couple of seasons, I think where he averaged double digit figures, uh, in terms of points, but, you know, Muggsy was an icon and remains so. Um, I have a, a friend of mine named Earl Curitan, who's who was a uh, teammate of Muggsy's on Charlotte, and um, they stayed. I know Earl. I've actually I actually spoke to Earl a few months ago for a project I'm working on. Yeah, yeah. He, he's great. Uh, great, great, yeah. great storyteller, and um, he's he's been around the league in, in a lot of different areas. And um, he talks about going to camps and speaking with you know, young kids um, who are, I don't know, 13 years old now, and they all know who Muggsy Bogues is. And Muggsy hasn't played since um, 2000, 2001, you know, a few games in 2001 before his mother died. And he, he quit the league as a result. But uh, the people still know who he is, and Space Jam helps that. And then, so I think it's worth remembering him both for his assist prowess and his lack of turnovers. I think he has the most games in, in NBA history with 10-plus assists and zero turnovers. And people have made a case that that should be called a Muggsy but he should also be remembered, you know, along with um, his talent as a, as a player, what he achieved as an inspirational figure. Um, I'm glad you brought up the high school team because, uh, of course, as you mentioned, there was there was a great book written about about the Don High School team. And <clears throat> for those that don't know, Muggsy played with future NBA players Reggie Williams, who you mentioned, David Wingate, and uh, the great Reggie Lewis. Um, I think, I mean. That would be a freaking incredible college team. To think that those guys were on the same high school team is 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 flat out scary. And as you said, there's, there's a case to be made that's the greatest high school team ever. Um, they were undefeated much, two years in a row, yeah. Mm-hmm. Would we – and as you know in the book, he initially started off at a different high school. If Muggsy had not transferred to Dunbar High School, would we have ever heard of Muggsy Bogues? Would there be a Muggsy Bogues in the that's NBA? A great, that's a great question. Um yeah, there were some hijinks, which I'm sure is not unique to Muggsy's career, about one high school kind of losing his transcripts. And though he was a few blocks, like a, basically a stone's throw from Dunbar High School, he was bused to a place called Southern. And they wanted him to play, but he sort of refused to. Eventually, he played a few games and kind of just kept his, his wind up, as they say, and kept his thing, his, his career going. Um, but he always wanted to be at Dunbar because that's where Reggie Williams, is, his best friend, was. And, and David Wingate, Reggie Lewis, who were sort of crosstown rival frenemies type of thing until they got together at Dunbar. Um, but the coach, Bob Wade, was somebody that, he, that Muggsy knew forever because, um, you know, of his older connections and his family who were associated with Dunbar. He knew of Bob Wade. And Bob Wade is a former NFL player. And was just an amazing coach. And there's stories about them not having a weight room. So Bob Wade picked up basically bricks and rubble, you know, on the side of the street and turned that into basically weights and things like that um, for training for um, the team. 
But Muggsy had his heart, you know, his giant heart set on being at Dunbar. So if he was never allowed in, you know, perish the thought, he, he probably wouldn't have had the career because, like I mentioned before, it was through his success at Dunbar, but also his connection with, with Coach Wade, who was very successful at Dunbar and was asked to be uh, a counselor or a coach at like the very, very famous like ABCD and Five Star Camps, which is um, before AAU stuff. That's where high school players went in the so 80s and 90s. Um, and so Wade would pick Muggsy to be on his team, you know, when no one else would pick this 5'3 guy. Um, and uh, there's a famous story where uh, Muggsy and Scotty Pippen, another unknown person who is from, I think, southern Arkansas, I forget the name of the college exactly, they were put on the same team together in one of these big camps and went undefeated. And that increased their draft stock immense, immensely, immeasurably. And so had it not been for Dunbar and Coach Wade, you probably would never have heard of Muggsy Bogues. You know, I'm sure he would say he would have found his way and, you know, who am I to doubt him, but... It's a. It would have been significantly more difficult if it was not for those institutions and, and for Coach Wade. So yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I I want um, to say it was last year, earlier this year. I listened to a very good podcast on. It was like a five part thing on the history of Five Star, mm-hmm. and they kind of um, they singled out three individuals who really made their mark and came out of nowhere at high school at Five Star. It was it was Moses Malone, Michael Jordan, and Muggsy Bogues. Wow! Yeah! Yeah! And, yeah! And they and they told the story of Muggsy and, and it was it, it sounds like he really that was a pretty formative experience for him as far as you know national exposure and, and all that. Yeah, because one of the themes of the book is um, always ha- at every level he was sort of allowed to or or you know brought into or introduced to he kept having to prove himself you know even though he you know went from middle school to high school. No one believed he would be good, and then he was really good. And he went from high school to college. No one believed he would be good, and he was really good. College to NBA, and, and those camps are part of that too. So it's, he gets to these camps, and no one wants to hang their hat on his skill. You know, they've heard the stories, or they maybe see him shooting around, or see how quick he is, or whatever. But no one wants to place a, their own bet with him. So he constantly has to prove himself, and he did so again at the, at the one of those camps, and. Um, and that earned him a scholarship offer into the ACC at Wake Forest, which is where he went to school and, and was you know, a star there and earned many accolades at Wake for his four years before entering the pros. So let's talk about Wake Forest for a second. Uh, you know, you, you, you described before kind of where Muggsy came from and, and what life was like in Baltimore at that time in the 1980s. Um, and then he goes to this, you know, big ACC campus uh, at Wake Forest, and um, well, talk about what what was that transition like for him? Because a lot of people can't can't survive, can't handle that kind of transition, end up going home. Yeah, which like? he which he wanted to. Um, he he talks about in the book wanting to transfer, wanting to leave. Um, he wanted to go to Virginia Tech, which is where Del Curry was playing, and I, you know, ironically, him and Del became lifelong friends and remained so. And Steph Curry wrote one of the forwards to the book and uh, it was a testament to Muggsy's influence on Steph and Steph was, um, or Muggsy was Steph's favorite player as Steph was growing up in North Carolina and following the Hornets and all that stuff. But it was a culture shock as, as you know, I went to call, I'm from New Jersey and I went to college um, uh, in the early two thousands and it was a culture shock for me too. And I didn't grow up in, you know, inner city Baltimore and, and Wake Forest is a Southern school, uh, uh, it's in North Carolina, but the campus isn't humongous. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of black faces. And I think there was a prejudice towards athletes and black athletes in particular, um, you know, that they only got in because of, you know, whatever. Um, uh, so I, I think all of that was difficult. And to you know, on top of that, or, or maybe sort of uh, connected to that, there was like some academic, you know, I don't know, I guess scandals, they weren't like national issues, but issues uh, you know academic issues with Muggsy and people accusing him of cheating and or using you know tutors or whatever in, in improper ways which were which were false and and he was eventually sort of exonerated um but that was a, a, a connected to the prejudice he faced and I, again it's you know I don't know how someone why someone would put themselves in there I guess he he felt he had no choice and he, on some level he probably had no choice if he wanted to continue his career but God, on top of going to practice every day and, and learning an offense and running an offense and dealing with primetime games in the ACC, you have to deal with that crap too. And 
you know, it's a testament to him and, 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 you know, most people like him who, who are athletes that have to do that kind of stuff. And, um, it's something I never had to experience and will never have to experience. And, um, again, it's another hurdle that he had to deal with. Um, so I, I, you know, I think he liked Wake Forest. I think he honors Wake Forest. I think Wake Forest honors him today, but I think, you know, the, the initial entry into it was, was difficult, was jarring. At what point did he, at what point did the NBA come on the radar for him? I mean, like when he was a young kid or when he was in high school, did he think that the NBA was a legitimate uh, possibility for him or how did that develop? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it was always sort of in the back of his mind, but I think um, he was smart in that it was always what what was important was the next level in front of him. So when he, when he was in high school, I don't I think it was I want to be in Division One college in a good school and a good in a good uh, conference and that's why he chose ACC and Wake and um, when he got to Wake he was on the bench largely and put in put in for certain defensive situations or late game situations and and then grew and grew and grew uh, his role there and eventually was you know I think team MVP and ACC tournament MVP at one point and and towards the uh, you know his junior and senior year the NBA became more and more of a, a real thing and when it was really solidified was when he played in international play. I think it was the Pan Am games. Um, and he played with top talent like David Robinson and other people like that. And against the best international players. And by the end of that tournament, he was, if not starting, was a very, very important person on the team was, was on the court, you know, when the buzzer ticked off in a close game in the gold medal game. And I think was contesting the final shot actually um, against his opponent. And so, that proved to him and to everybody that he absolutely belonged and his draft draft stock just went up, went up, went up until he was the 12th pick with Washington. And it's kind of strange what happened in Washington. I mean, he was there that one year, as you said, the 12th pick, I mean, a team, you know, has to think pretty highly of you to select you 12th overall. And, and usually teams will invest in, in, in the 12th overall pick, but yeah. it, it seemed they didn't really play him and then, and then gave up on him after one year, really. Yeah. The, the, it's the story of Muggsy's from, from what I've surmised and speaking with him and writing the book, um, people just didn't believe he could do anything um, his first few years. So again, it was, I made it to this new level, but no one here really believes me except for maybe the GM who picked me. And you can read the tea leaves a little bit and there might've been some, you know, he was a local guy, so that that he brought some cachet in that respect. But I think they probably wanted to sell a couple more tickets, having Muggsy Bogues, the shorter player, maybe you know connect with the with the kids, and that maybe the coach or some other assistant coach or something didn't weren't on board with that. They wanted to win, and they didn't think they could win with Muggsy, um, who was also teammates with Manute Bowl. So they had that very famous picture of the seven seven Manute and the five three Muggsy, and so there's probably some chicanery or something involved with that, but. No one believed him, and, and, and he thought he could play. And by the time he was that first season was over, the, the team had made the playoffs, and he was the leader in assists, despite not having a lot of um, belief behind him from coaches like Wes Unseld and people like that, who's a legend in his own right. And so they told Muggsy that he was in their plans for the following year, but then they left him open for the expansion draft when Charlotte was coming into the league. Charlotte and um, Miami. Miami. Miami, right, and then Minnesota, and, and another team was Orlando. Orlando, right? yeah. Next year, yeah. So, um, and Muggsy was picked um, third or something like that in the expansion draft, and uh, and Charlotte, he got to Charlotte. He thought it was going to be great, and then again, the coach there took a couple of years and a couple of different coaches for uh, anyone to believe that he could produce on the court. And one of the coaches would, you know, he came into the owner, the Charlotte's owner's office on his knees and pretending to be Muggsy Bogues. Like, this is what it's like to guard Patrick Ewing, just kind of trying to clown him a little bit. And the owner himself, I think, was 5'5", which is not the tallest for, uh, you know, a person, a man or whatever. And so he had sympathy and, and cared about Muggsy in, in a personal way and um, eventually brought in coaches that would cater to his speed and his, his knack for uh, dishing out assists and some things like that. And eventually the teams would coalesced in part around Muggsy's skill set, which again is a testament to the value of perseverance. You know, I, I can't imagine the, the, the nights of doubt and the anger and all that stuff, you know, your first four years in the league, just kind of, not only are you not playing, but you're being disrespected by the people who are supposed to have your best interests in mind. And, and yet he, he maintained that legendary status or grew into it eventually. Yeah, and of course Charlotte became a, a a great 
a great situation for him, it seems. Yeah. You know, as mm-hmm. you talk in the book, uh, he had wonderful friendship with Del Curry, uh, guys like Rex Chapman. Uh, mm-hmm. It seems like he was close with, obviously, Alonzo wrote the the forward, and, mm-hmm. and Larry Johnson spoke very highly of him. Mm-hmm. Um, and that team, I mean, I remember well, I was a kid. I mean, that team was on the rise. There was a period there because they had the, the back-to-back picks of Larry Johnson and Alonzo Mourning, and it looked like this is going to be the team yeah. of the future. You know, I think, a lot, you know, Zoe is in the Hall of Fame, great player. I think a lot of people, you know, younger people really can't grasp how great Larry Johnson was. I mean, right. that guy was a beast. Yeah. I mean, he was and until and then he hurt his back and he wasn't the same. But um, I wonder if does, does Muggsy have any, you know, kind of what ifs with that team? Because it, it, it they looked like this bright, shining star. And then very quickly, it kind of all fell apart. Yeah, there, uh, you know, the, there was unfortunately some some infighting, I think, between its two biggest stars. Uh, you know, Larry had gotten there first, had won the Rookie of the Year. Um, Alonzo was probably a slightly a better player. They both dealt with injuries, and um, they didn't have, you know, it was early, but they didn't have giant success in the playoffs. They won the first round um, in Alonzo's rookie year with a buzzer beater that he hit against the Celtics. Sadly, the playoff series where Reggie Lewis collapsed um, and, you know, he, he passed away later that summer. And the team, but the team sort of lost in the first round leading up to that. And, and Kendall Gill was in and out and he was sort of an important player that didn't, I don't know, see the vision or, or maybe he wanted a bigger role on another team, thinking he was a potential star and, and he's had some 20-point seasons. And I, it just didn't click, for lack of a better word. Um, and... You know, I think it's. I think if I'm going to be candid, you know, I think it's hard to win in the playoffs with with a point guard who's not super tall. Like I think, you know, Chris Paul, who's a uh, you know, a mentee of Muggsy, has shown that. You know, Chris has had some success, but as a shorter player, it's tough. Um, you know, even John Stockton, who was the person who I loved growing up, a, a point guard I loved, who's about six feet, and the, while the Jazz got to the finals a couple of years, they couldn't get over the hump over a very long. Um, defensive-minded Chicago Bulls team, so I think I think that can be tough. And so then Muggsy got hurt. You know, halfway through his career, he had a, a big knee injury that cost him the season. And then Charlotte kind of scrambled and got different point guards in, Kenny Anderson included. And then then Baron Davis came along, and I, I just think things didn't align in a way that maybe they could have. If, if you know Bill Simmons, the the famous NBA person, like writer and all that stuff, if like, he talks about like, if you could play a career 10 times over, you know, if you could play Charlotte Hornets career 10 times over, they probably have more success. That was probably one of the, the weaker outcomes from what you might project. But so I think, you know, I, I think Muggsy's a realist and I, I think he would say uh, that they had a better shot, but also they did, they, they did the best they could. And, um, you know, think the chips sort of fell where they, where they want it was a weird time for the nba too because money people were getting big deals and and lj got a, a giant deal i think alonzo wanted a giant deal i don't know you know if the team a small market team could afford both of them even though the salary cap wasn't the same it it, it was just a, a weird time in the league in the 90s you know the the um attention was exploding and you see people like scotty pippen and even michael jordan they signed long-term contracts that hurt them in you know in the long run I just think it was a it's a difficult time, you know. It was post '80s with Magic and Larry, and the Bulls hadn't super solidified themselves yet. It was just an awkward time for the league, and I think the Hornets kind of suffered from that. Yeah. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as uh, simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Um, I want to go back to that first year in Washington for a second because, mm-hmm. you know, I, I enjoyed reading and... 
you talk to guys from that generation or even older players and uh, inevitably, as Muggsy did, they, they, they talk about the, the guys who helped them when they got to the league, the veteran presence. presence. And I think, I think that's something that's missing from the league now. I think we, we, there's so much emphasis on youth, youth and developing youth, and, mm-hmm. and we don't have enough of those guys. Um, you know, Hodge Gibson was on the Knicks for the last couple of years. I'm a Knicks fan. Like, he was, he was great. I mean, mm-hmm. he, first of all, he could, he could still play a little bit, but, the, but he brought so much value to the locker room um as just a leader a leader and a mentor and and somebody who could tell you hey this is how you take care of your money this is how you dress this is how you keep your body right you know all that stuff and it was kind of cool to hear Muggsy in the book talk about some of those guys who really helped him out and you know and and it was you know it's a for most for most guys it's difficult your rookie season but um can you talk about some of those guys that helped him along the way yeah, the person that jumps out to me and jumped out to me in the story was um, was Moses Malone. Um, he, he just seems like a constant mentor for people. There's that famous story where he told Charles Barkley he had to, that Charles had to lose 50 pounds in order to stay in the league. But <clears throat> Moses was important to Muggsy, and so was Manute Bowl. You know, they they had conversations. Manute was in the USBL, which is like a developmental league, um, before he made it to the NBA, and Muggsy spent some time there too. And so they had that in common, and. And even in the USBL, there were other players that sort of helped Muggsy believe that he belonged and said that he, he could play and all those things. Um, and then, you know, famously, Muggsy flipped that around and, and became that person on teams like Golden State and Toronto. And and that's what he was brought in to sort of be a mentor to people like Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady and things like that. And, and that's actually, a, you know, kind of a bigger part of the book um, is talking about his relationships with people like that and, and how important that he, you know, Steph Curry included, even though they weren't ever teammates. So I think Muggsy uh, appreciated the mentorship and then knew how, how valuable it was to sort of flip it around. And I was listening to an interview or a podcast, something like today. Um, it was Brian Windhorst on like the Hoop Collective or something like that. And, and um, the, one of the guests was talking about Damian Lillard and how Mo Williams was important to Damian on Portland and how now Damian's transferring that to Anthony Simons. And so, so that is important. And I think the people who have you know, their hearts in the right place, know, know how important that can be. And, and Muggsy, like, man, he's at the center. Of it. It's all the people that came, I would get, you know, getting calls from Charles Oakley and Vince Carter and Rex Chapman. I mean, Rex, Rex Chapman would still be talking about Muggsy if he could, um, you know, Earl Curitan, all these people that Muggsy had an influence on. And it, that, that was just like kind of the biggest part of the book to me. I mean, I don't, Steph Curry doesn't do a whole lot of, he, you know, he's like the fifth most famous person in the world, but he stopped his day to, to do a forward for, for Muggsy. And um, that's a testament to sort of, you know, the leadership and, and the hand that Muggsy had in so many people's careers. Alonzo, too. Uh, but in terms of Muggsy's early career, you know, Moses Malone was a, was a big, important person um, um, in development, yeah. You mentioned before, I want to go back to it, uh, you know, Reggie Lewis's tragic death. Uh, yeah. how, did, how did that affect Muggsy? Oh man, D- devastating! Uh, when the, he talks about it in the book, when uh, he found out, he just you know dropped the phone and was crying, and in disbelief. Um, it wasn't just someone he knew and loved. You know, this is someone that uh, Muggsy was something of a mentor to. Uh, Reggie uh, was from Baltimore, and um, they're they're about the same age. I can't remember off the top. Of my, I think yeah, they were the same class. But Reggie sort of he was the sixth man on Dunbar. He wasn't even the starter. That's how good the team was. Um, and he, he sort of took a long time to develop. You know, he went to Northeastern, which isn't the biggest school in the world, and eventually was drafted by the Celtics and became, you know, potentially Michael Jordan's biggest rival, rival before Reggie died, unfortunately. And he was an all-star and the Boston Celtics captain. So Muggsy got to see him really grow into his role. And to be in the playoff series where he sees him fall – and I think there's some amount of uh, um, disbelief where you're like, okay, that's it's got to be an ankle, it's got to be you know his thigh hurts or something like. But even though Reggie wasn't touched when he fell, it, nothing caused him to fall. It was his heart, of course. Um, and then you know I'm sure there was amount some amount of like I wish I could have done more. I think everybody thought that you know Reggie died shooting around alone in a gym, you know, in the summer between that playoff series and the next year. And Muggsy talks in the book about playing a preseason game that following year in the fall against Boston. And that that's when it really hit him because Reggie was supposed to be there and he wasn't. Um, so, you know, a, a friend 
died. Uh, an important NBA figure died. Uh, it, it was a big loss, um, you know, in terms of his family, his friendship, and his like professional circle. And I, I remember, I, you know, I didn't ask him this, and maybe I should have, but I, there's probably a sense that um, everybody wishes they could have done more for him. Just told him to stop, stop playing. You know, rest your heart, learn your heart, figure out what's wrong. And that, of course, there's that famous doctor who. Did all you know? Bent over backwards to say it wasn't Reggie's heart, while everybody else in the medical community and basketball community were basically saying it was. And um, so it's tragic. It's, it's 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 you know one of the more tragic things that's ever happened in the NBA. And to have it be your best friend is just devastating. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how did it feel for Muggsy to get traded? Uh, he did not like it to get traded. I mean, I think he, he, he uh, <laughs> Charlotte was home. Um, and he, I think he had visions of um, eventually ending his career there and, you know, working his way up to the front office and just sort of being one of the Charlotte Hornets for life. Um, but management and uh, one of his coaches, I forget the guy's name off the top of my head, you know, suggested he should retire. And Muggsy thought he had plenty of years left, which he proved he did. And so um, Golden State, which was one of the worst teams in the league and very much rebuilding, wanted to bring in that veteran presence that you talked about to mentor its you know younger players like Antoine Jameson and um, uh, folks like that. And um, so they brought in Muggsy. They traded for him. And he was welcomed and he was appreciate, appreciative for that. But I think it, it, it sucks to um, be dealt from your home, you know, and, and not want, you know, not feeling as if you're not welcomed in the place that you basically built. I mean, he was there from day one, um, one of the first selections on the team, along with Del Curry and Rex Chapman. Um, you know, but he's good at building a home and making relationships. And and that and so he was he was cool uh, in, in Golden State. And then he eventually got the opportunity to go to Toronto with joining back up with Dell, which I think was a big major, you know, uh, influence in him going to the Raptors and that expansion team and, and dealing again with younger players like Vince and Tracy and things like that. But it hurt, you know, it's definitely, it was definitely a point for him that, that it hurt. And um, it took, a, it took some years to rectify and he's back with the Hornets. Now he's an ambassador there and works with the team and he's on TV and here and there. And he did a book signing uh, at the stadium and um, he works uh, with the front office and has a relationship, I think with, with Michael Jordan, which is his own thing. Um, uh, but it took some years to rectify, and uh, I, I'm, you know, it hurt to be expelled in some way. Yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> as you mentioned, you went to Toronto, and Toronto um, that was a fun team. It was interesting. It that's yeah. amazing because you know Muggsy. I guess maybe it's inevitable when you play in the league for 14 years. But I mean, he he, he played with a lot of great players, and you know, he kind of he started his career with Moses Malone. And finished it with Vince Carter and Tracy McGrady. I mean that that's that's, that's a pretty big span, yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was cool because it seems like it was a nice situation for him in that um, it wasn't just the young guys and him. It, you know, Oakley was there and his his close friend Del Curry was there, and I think Antonio Davis was there. Like they had other. It was a good mix of young guys and vets. Um, how did he? Once he kind of settled in there, did he enjoy his time in Toronto? Yeah, it was great. He he signed there for the minimum um, in 2000, wanting to prove himself. You know, the, the Golden State situation was tough. He was he was shooting around with Sprewell when the whole Sprewell PJ Carlissimo thing happened. He was again, he you know he's sort of like the Forrest Gump of the NBA, and I say that lovingly. Yeah. That he was like part of everything, um, including that. And uh, so his his career was in flux. Leaving Golden State was was weird. That whole situation was weird. They they didn't win very many games. Um, so he signed for the minimum to prove himself in Toronto and and did so. Um, he was a, a contributor and played well. I think in one of the playoff games he had double digit points and um, and they ended up signing him to I believe a four year deal after that for the beginning in the two thousand one season. But then his mom died and he, he was so so close with his mom in the minute that she passed away, he, he dropped everything and left the league and, um, you know, wanted her to see his final game. Um, and, and so he had this contract, which was eventually traded a couple of times, I think to the Knicks and to Dallas and I think Mark Cuban, um, they like dissolved the contract, but paid him all the money, um, things like that. So he, he did solidify himself in Toronto and would have played four years there had there not been like a family tragedy. Um, 
Vince speaks very highly of him. There's these great you know, YouTube videos of alley-oops and things like that. And, and Tracy was, was important, although Tracy eventually um, went to Orlando famously. But, um, yeah, Muggsy was, Muggsy was like an assistant coach and a friend and a big brother and, and a valuable contributor um, in limited minutes with the Raptors. So I think it was like kind of – and, you know, it was an expansion team or basically an expansion team. So it had some – it mirrored Charlotte a little bit. And he was, he was big with the kids there, as, as he always is. So it was just a win-win situation, and um, sadly, his mother passed away, and that um, you know forced him or in his own mind to to leave the league. And so he probably could have played. You know, he played 14 years. He probably could have played 16 or or more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I uh, so after his career, I lost my train of thought there for a second. Yeah. <laughs> after his career. Um, he uh, he coached for a few years, and he and he talks in the book. Um, it sounds like there was a very positive experience for him. Does he have any interest in getting back into coaching? You know, I don't know. Um, I, I if the answer would be yes, it would be you know based on the right situation. Um, he's I think he's approaching sixty, um, and so you know I don't know I don't know what he wants to do in terms of like the you know the sort of final chapters or, or whatever in his life he's working as an ambassador with the hornets and i think he finds uh, a lot of satisfaction there um uh he's got a family he's got kids he works with his daughter um he's got a grandson who's an up-and-coming basketball player and that's sort of where we end the book talking about because his grandson is very skilled but also very short and um when muggsy's daughter a different daughter than the one he works with closely different than Brittany, um when she talked about her son it was so beautiful to me because she said that people don't call him short. They just say he plays like Muggsy, which I think is just a testament to a life well lived um, in that Muggsy's work and dedication paid off that people aren't ridiculed for being short. They, they now have, you know, their, their person that they're compared to. It's like, you're not short. You play like Muggsy. It's a, it's a different, the conversation is bent in a different direction. Thanks to the, you know, his determination and, um, so I just thought that that was a great way to end the book, but yeah, you know, I think he's pretty comfortable. He, he's, he, he's in commercials for like Caesar's palace in, in Las Vegas. And he was part of their, um, the NBA's, uh, 75th year commercials doing stuff. Um, he's a legend. He's a one of one. He's, he's memorable for a very distinct reason, something that no one else has ever really come close to. And I, I think it's pretty good to be Muggsy Bogues right now. You know, I, if, if he was offered a coaching job or an assistant job, I, I I don't know if he would take it. I'm sure he would consider it, but um, I think it would take a lot to to switch up. You know, kind of what he's doing these days. There's a there's a great story uh, in the book, and I I can't remember who it was now, but one of his teammates didn't know his real name. Yeah, and you know, here we're, we're having this we're having this this conversation, and it's Muggsy, 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 and that uh, that's what he goes by. Is there anyone in his life who calls him Tyrone? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, maybe his mom was the last person to do that. Um, and he didn't even like his nickname at first because he didn't want to be associated with theft, I think, with this idea of mugging people. Right. But, you know, when you're 5'3 and you steal the ball all the time and you got a, a great big smile and, you know, people call you Muggsy, which is also the name of a television character of a show that he liked, uh, uh, I think it sticks. And he had no choice on some level, so he kind of embraced it. And what a great name, Muggsy, you know, yeah. Muggsy Bogues. It's like you can picture him without even knowing what he looks like. <laughs> uh, I, I kind of said before, I thought, you know, I, I thought this as I was reading the book that um, <clears throat> it seems to me like Muggsy would, I don't, you know, he had a great career as it was, but it seems like, it seems like he would fit even better in today's game, you know, with the, the kind of the, the pace and space, pushing the ball up the floor, uh, the game's not as physical. He'd have he'd have more you know it's more pick and roll. He'd have more room to get to get yeah. in the lane, get to the basket, you know, distribute for others. Is that something you've talked about with him? How how he would? Yeah, work he, he 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 always sort of famously says that every 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 NBA player thinks they could play at any level or any any generation. Um, and Muggsy Muggsy could score. You know, he had a good shot. He he was always a good uh, free throw shooter, which is an indication of uh, a good shooter in general for the most part. Um, he just didn't look for it all the time. You know, it was a way to keep defensive defenses honest, not a, a way to pad stats. Um, so he was always looking to pass. But I think um, in a in a league in an era that is, it involves shooting, he would not have hurt any of the teams that he was on. And 
Um, you know, I people Michael Jordan famously, and I don't know, he averaged twenty percent from three. You know, some some years of his career, but he wasn't practicing. It wasn't a focal point. So I think if Muggsy was coming up today in a league influenced by Steph Curry, who was influenced by Muggsy Bogues, um, I think he would be just fine. Um, uh, you know, defense is always the issue in terms of when it gets tighter and tighter and tighter. And so he would have had to have been in a team that could, um, you know, do well with that. He may have been, you know, he's obviously an excellent defender and could steal the ball and was, and no one wanted to bring it up against him. He was 94 feet, um, all those things. But in a half court setting, I think that's the one thing um, if he had a flaw to play half court defense in crunch time in the playoffs, that's something that maybe would have had to have been figured out a little bit better than Charlotte figured out. But, you know, if he's playing on teams with Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan, I think he would have been fine. Um, you know, people with long, long arms, good, excellent defenders. And he was obviously an excellent defender in, in his own right. You know, and people like Steve Nash did, did well, although Nash was obviously a little bit taller, but you know, if you have Sean Marion and other people like that on your team, you can, it can, it can help. But, um, so that's the that's the one area if we're going to be sort of all encompassing and a little bit critical. That's the one area where Muggsy maybe wasn't, you know, an, an all world person, but to have to be good at nine things and not great at the tenth, you know, that'll indicate a, an excellent career, which is what he had. Yeah, and along those lines, you, you said it before, and then you, you talk in in the introduction of the book that you believe he should be in the Hall of Fame. Oh yeah. So Jake Udy, this is your this is your platform. I'm I'm Jerry Colangelo and and who the nominating committee, however the heck that works. Give me your pitch from uh, Muggsy Bogues to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, well, I mean, I've said it a couple of times, but he's a one of one. Um, you know, there's I let's say there's 500 people in the Hall of Fame. Does your average NBA fan know 450 of them? Maybe maybe not, but they definitely know Muggsy Bogues. Um, the consistent impact that he has on fans and as an, as a point of inspiration, you know, I maybe the coolest thing maybe in the whole book was Steph Curry talking about uh, he just wanted to be five, three at some point in his life. Cause he knew then he had a chance and Muggsy gave that to people. Um, I'm not sure that there's a, a, a bigger gift that any player is given to any young kid than to give that benchmark of, no, I don't have to be six feet. I don't have to be six, five. If I could just be five, three, you know, every fifth grader is thinking about that. If I can just be five, three, I can, I have a chance. And Muggsy Bogues gave that to the world. And, you know, they, the, the, the hall of fame is dependent upon, you know, MVPs, all stars, X, Y, Z. And, and maybe it shouldn't be, you know, I, I heard Jeff Van Gundy in a, in the great podcast with Zach Lowe talk about, you know, maybe people like Charles Oakley should be in the, the hall of fame. You know, he, Charles, probably averaged a double-double a couple times in his career, but he was so impactful and so memorable. How do you quantify that? And, sh- and you know, even if you can't in statistics, shouldn't that be honored in some sort of historic way? And I mean, I, we're talking about Muggsy Bogues. He hasn't played for 20 years. You and I both have a fondness for him, know him. I've thought about him throughout our lives as NBA fans. Like, there's other criteria other than how many times you were or were not on an all-star team. Um and so that, absolutely. That's, that's what I would say. Um, absolutely. And, you know, another guy that comes to mind is who's been talked about it. Um, when Rudy Tomjanovich got in the Hall of Fame, he he, he kind of stumped for Robert Ori. Right. Exactly. Another, yeah. Another person another like that. Example yeah. like that. The other thing is, you know, there's 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 you get in the Hall of Fame as a player and a coach. You could also get in as a contributor. Right. Um, and so how do and we define that? Yeah, it might be that might be his strongest case. Right. His contribution to the growth and the popularity of the game and, and a lot of things that you touched on, the belief that he's given to smaller players and and just the way he's he's changed the perception of what it is to be a basketball player. Um, that might that might be the best the best avenue for him. But yeah. Um, it's an interesting argument. Yeah. I mean I, I think it's I think it's tough. You know, sports is great because you it's quantifiable. Um, and I think contributions that Muggsy has made and people like him aren't as easily numerically quantifiable. Um, but I think, you know, one number is just the amount of kids that light up when they think of him or see him or, you know, Space Jam, things like that. And um, again, to give the, I, I remember being in fifth grade and I was five feet tall and thinking, I just want to get to five, three. I shared that same moment that Steph Curry talked about. And now I, I didn't have the impact of Steph Curry, of course, a uh, few have, um, but, you know, that, that we both shared that, hope or that you know that sort of benchmark that's a gift Muggsy Bogues gave us and has given 
millions, tens of millions of people, continues to give tens of millions. I mean, everybody who plays basketball Googles nowadays who's the shortest player. Yeah. And just it's just it, it's just you can't get past that. And Muggsy Bogues pops up and and I don't know, that seems like a pretty big contribution. Well and and every and I would add this that everybody who saw him play or oh, and as you you know, many, many, many people since both liked him and respected him. Everybody. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Everybody. Universally, right? Yeah. Teammates, opponents, fans, everybody liked him and respected him. And, and you can't say that about too many people. And Earl, who we talked about, Earl Curitan, he, he played with Dr. J, played with Michael Jordan, played with Isaiah Thomas, played with Moses Malone, and he says that Muggsy's the greatest athlete he's ever played with or, uh, you know, been around. Right. Um, so there's that. Yeah. You can leave it there. <laughs> all right, Jake, I'm going to get you out of here with one last question that I like to ask all my guests. Um, first, once again, the name of Jake's book is Muggsy, My Life from Akin the Projects to the Godfather of Small Ball. Um, I hope you can tell from my tone throughout this this interview that I I, I love the book. Um, Thank you. I'm a fan of Muggsy. It was it was it was very well told, and I, I regret we didn't get a, we didn't get a lot into it, kind of more of his personal stuff, his his relationship with his his brother, and I, he's 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 a beautiful family man. Yeah. Um, his, with his children, his 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 mother, his brother, his his late sister. Story with his wife is incredible. Also, yeah, also, remarkable. Yeah. Um, uh, but. It's a great book. He's he's uh, he's just a wonderful um, subject, and he and and Jake did a great job with it. Um, so you. definitely check it out. So Jake, my final question for you is: What is your all-time favorite sports book? Oh man, uh, the the first one that just jumped into my brain uh, is Friday Night Lights. Uh, I thought that book was incredible. I couldn't put it down. Um, the story of high school football in Texas. Um, but you know, I, I've been reading tons of them lately. Um, uh, I just read the Scotty Pippen biography by Michael Arkush. I hope I'm saying that right. Um, who's who's a very brilliant, very sweet person. Um, oh man, uh, the Ray Allen also by the Ray Allen one also by Michael. Uh, uh, Brian Windhorst has written great books about uh, LeBron James. Man, there's the the first one I ever read was Drive, the Larry Bird one. Um, this was like when I was in middle school. Um, the first, so the first one that jumps out is Friday Night Lights. But I, man, I, I there's so many. I just read this giant, six inch thick book about Dirk Nowitzki, which is excellent. Um, my, if I could bring the camera over, my my shelf above my refrigerator is is sinking down because of all the uh, sports biographies and memoirs and stuff that I've been reading recently. But um, Friday Night Lights just off the top of my head, but um, you know I'm going to kick myself after this call because there's, there's a, the, K, the Kevin Garnett one was amazing. Uh, KG A to Z, it's called. Right. Um, that was great too. Um, so yeah, I don't know. There's there's so many great ones, and I have a bunch on my shelf that I'm about to read, including the Mahmoud Abdul Arouf uh, yeah, uh, so biography that, that I want to read too. Um, yeah, things like that. So yeah, there's there's uh, there's a ton of them, um, and I hope the genre continues to thrive. Because right, well, sorry, because you learn so much. You know, there's a, there's the there's the athlete's life, there's the story, but there's so many social dynamics. You know, webbed, you know, interconnected with these stories. That not only the history of the game and and the coaches and the teammates, and all that stuff, but just what life is like for people who become great and often, as is you know American uh, history, uh, come from dire situations. And so, anyway, thank right. you for giving this a platform, Paul. And it was it's a pleasure to speak with you. And thank you so much. Absolutely, thank you, Jake. And best of, best of luck with the book. Thank you.